Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough, and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D S T L D. You get, like, brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FARRELL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Hello, and uh, welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, as always. And, uh, wow, we got a really great uh, episode for you. I'm really excited about this one. I I speak with uh, Dan Kavalik, who is a social critic and a human and labor rights lawyer. Uh, You may... You may see him in this uh, documentary uh, called The Coca-Cola Case, which uh, he he and a couple other guys um, went up. They found like a loophole and they uh, to, so they could go and sue Coca-Cola in Colombia because Coca-Cola was uh, participating in paramilitaries, torturing and killing Huguenot, uh, union organizers, <laughs> um, you know, a real chipper upbeat sort of thing something a film you want to watch with the whole kids maybe you know just uh, scoot that uh, tv near the thanksgiving table that's coming up there and just be like hey you know what we have we should be thankful that coke is killing union organizers to keep these coke prices down so we can enjoy a nice coca-cola a nice cheap inexpensive bottle of this brown sugar water for thanksgiving when the white man was the illegal immigrant. Remember those days, everybody? When the white man was the illegal immigrant? Man, how did we do that? How did we turn that around? How did we turn that around and uh, make it so that everybody else was... The, we're, we're, we're the cockroaches of the world, the white European, saying that you can own land when it's been here for billions of years. White Europeans, the cockroach of America, everybody. <laughs> I forgot to point out the music that plays there at the intro is... Uh, Les Blanks, enjoy them. Go to lesblanks.com and get some more. Um, but uh, Dan Kavalik and I, we don't just talk about uh, 
the Coca-Cola case, because you can watch that on the documentary, which is streaming on Netflix right now. But uh, Dan and I talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about uh, the state of unions, uh, a lot of the foreign uh, policies, uh, the expansion of military under Obama. Uh, it's it's a pretty goddamn uh, heady conversation, so uh, fucking strap on your brain cap, everybody, and get ready for Dan Kavalik. But before we do that, I want to I bring up something, by the way. I, I, uh, there's some issues going on. I, I, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Ali, uh, gave me this uh, link to uh, or, organicconsumers.org uh, about uh, Whole Foods and how they they claim a lot of their stuff is uh, GMO-free in their stores. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, like 30% of it actually is. And they're kind of they're mislabeling and sort of bait and switching people. And I, I, what is what I'm really what's more interesting to me is people assume that like Whole Foods because they sort of give this image off of themselves that they're this you know like hey we're concerned about your well being that and it's John Mackey the CEO of that company is a, a fucking right wing dickhead who's given money to Romney he was anti union he was anti health care and it's it seems like when people are kind of confused when you say that to them but it's like. These are just fucking millionaires who saw a market and they were like, hey, I got money. Let's make some more money. Am I right, everybody? Let's make money. Fuck everybody. It's about making money in America. That's why I do these podcasts. A lot of big money. A lot of big money. A lot of pussy in podcasting. Just so you know. And if you're not gay and a woman and you're doing podcasting, you're going to get a lot of pussy. It's going to be forced on you. You're in podcasting. But... There's a, a proposition coming up that we can vote on here in California called Prop 37, which is forcing, uh, like, like companies that are under Monsanto that they have to label whether this stuff is organic and they also have to label, cause a lot of these, you know, products are called like nature's buddy or something. And it gives the illusion that they're actually these healthy foods when, you know, they're not. And it's, there's, so they're going to have to label who owns these companies, who's the, who the parent company is, like Monsanto, who, by the way, is fucking pure evil. But Mackey has given money to the Romney campaign, but, you know, maybe Whole Foods should give... Yeah, they're not going to, because they don't give a fuck, because they're a major corporation. So, yeah, there's that. So just, you know, these I think these are things we need to be aware of, because there's these... You know, the corporations, they're fucking snakes in the grass. Casey didn't know that. Did you not know that? Guys like the Koch brothers, who I talked about last week. The Koch brothers. Really, there's another deceiving name. The Koch brothers. Like, if I knew back in my old neighborhood, the, if two guys were named the Koch brothers, they'd bring a fucking party with them. <laughs> they would be like, hey, the Koch brothers are here, everybody. We got hookers and an eight ball. We're the Koch brothers. Who wants to drink some Jack Daniels and do some nitrous? We're the Coke Brothers. The party's here. Nope. Not our Coke Brothers, everybody. And I know I said this last week, but if any of my listeners are crazy and you're looking for a venue for that crazy, don't walk into a movie theater with a pistol or something. Find the Coke Brothers, abduct them, take them out to a you know, an abandoned warehouse, sort of near a lake or something, and time to a chair. Make them eat glass. <laughs> Grind up some glass finely and put it in some brownies for the Koch brothers. And over a period of time, that causes internal... Now, I don't, like, I don't want to hurt other individuals. I'm just saying, if you're crazy, and you're going to do something crazy, do crazy for the good of mankind. 
and rid ourselves of the parasite fucking awful human beings, the Koch brothers. <laughs> uh, I know I said similar things last week, but I'm just saying, you know, I'm just getting that, getting that message out there. Getting that message out there, everybody. Um, I'm going to get on to this uh, great conversation that we're about to have uh, with uh, Dan Kovalik. Uh, he's a really great guy. He's got a lot to say, and uh, I'm really proud uh, he agreed to do the show. I'm really, this episode is um, something, I, the, uh, I've been striving for something like this where we cover a wide array of topics um, from a very, you know, knowledgeable man who's not only just knows the the facts and but he's he's in it he participates he's a human rights and labor lawyer and he's uh he's an active man and he's got a lot of great things to say and i'm really uh glad he agreed to do the show so fucking enjoy it It, it, you don't prefer Daniel, do you? Is it just Dan? Dan is great. Yes, oh, thank you. Good. Let's keep it for. I, 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 first before we start and whatnot, I just uh, I want to thank you very much uh, for doing this. It it really has me excited. I'm uh, I really admire greatly what you do. So I just want to. Uh, that's really amazing. I mean, I I don't you know that's amazing. You know what I <laughs> so I. <laughs> you know, so I am excited as well, you know. Well, so. Dan, I, I spend a lot of time alone, and I watch a lot of documentaries, and I read, uh, you know, fringe periodicals. So. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. So, you know. Did you uh, see, you must have seen the Coke film, I guess, then, maybe. Uh, I, I definitely did, and, uh, you know, to, to, not to, I don't want to sound ass Casey or anything, but uh, like shit like that to me is heroic. Like that's, I can't even imagine um, the daunting task of going up against a corporation like Coca Cola is pretty fucking astounding. <laughs> you know. Well, thank you, thank you. I, I really, you know, like I, I'm very, you know, what can I say? Uh, move that you say that because again, like. Uh, you know, I don't know who watches that film or anything. I know someone put it up on Netflix recently, so I guess that's how some people are finding it. So, uh, well, I'm excited, I, and I'm happy to go any direction you want to go. You know, uh, I actually, uh, not was saying the film that I feel like come off a little, I don't know, uh, serious and maybe sad. I'm actually kind of, uh, I, I do have kind of a whimsical side. So, I, any way you want to go is is great. So. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you were dealing with guys being murdered, so it's a little hard to be chipper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but and you, you uh, to to get started, uh, though I was enjoying what we were just talking about. Uh, you are a uh, human and labor rights lawyer, and uh, and that's mostly with. Uh, you, when you say labor rights, that's mostly with unions, correct? Yeah, I'm actually work in house for the United Steelworkers Union in Pittsburgh. I've had that job for 19 years, and I, you know, that's my base of operations. And you were doing, and you do like with the Coca-Cola, and like I, I don't want to talk too much about the Coca-Cola documentary because people could watch that, and this way we they could see that, and then we can cover other ground. But you do a lot of stuff in Colombia, correct, with workers' rights there and human rights. Yes, I've been doing that for for about 10 years. And 
But Latin America in general, before I even worked for the union, that's really my first love, truthfully, and I kind of convinced the union to to go on board and let me do that in Colombia. Oh, so. the Steelworkers Union got behind you with that? Yes. That's really great. Yeah, it's amazing. It is great, you know. So I'm I'm pretty lucky in that regard. What 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 was what drew you to Colombia? Like what was what made inspired that love, so to speak? Well, I mean, just in general, uh, I've been very interested in Latin America really since I was a kid, I guess, because I was very interested in the Cold War as a child, which may sound bizarre, but uh, uh, I was fascinated by it. And, and during the 80s when I was growing up, that Latin America, particularly Central America, was the ostensibly the the hot spot that I knew about for the Cold War uh, rivalries in the U.S. was steeped in, in fighting in those countries, mostly through surrogates, you know, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala. And um, my, the first I was, you know, raised Roman Catholic, and the first um, interest I had was when um, the Archbishop Romero was killed in El Salvador, and I was very upset about that, and also especially I saw a 60 Minutes piece which talked about the fact that it might have been forces loyal to the U.S. that carried out that killing and also the rape and murder of these four church women down there, too. And it was a real kind of shocking revelation because my fascination was with the Cold War was from our end. I mean, that is that I obviously, at least as a kid, supported the U.S. in that struggle and uh, thought the biggest, you know, kind of threat to us and to, you know, the faith was was communism. And, and if the U.S. Uh, was somehow sponsoring the killing of priests and archbishops, that was, you know, that was a little shocking. And I, I, I don't know, I carried that with me. And then when I, I was uh, 19, I went to Nicaragua during the war there, and I went back when I was 20. What year was that? And I, so in 87 and 88. That's when so the cultural Contra War still going on. Uh, at that time, being being supported uh, at least by '88, I think illegally then through the Iran Contra, you know, uh, uh, machinations because Congress cut off the funding in '87. But in any case, uh, that trip also was very uh, life changing for me, and I decided, frankly, that the U.S. was not on the right side of these fights and. Uh, and not on the right side of the fight in Colombia as well. And, and uh, pertinent to the steelworkers union, Colombia also happens to be the most dangerous country in the world for trade unionists, with, with more unionists being killed there than any country in the world for many years running. And indeed, for many years running, over half the unionists assassinated in the entire world are killed in Colombia. So that was a way to kind of marry the two interests um, that I had it. And you don't, it's, what what's, I mean, the Killer Coke thing, when that was happening, I, I heard a lot about that, and of course the things you were talking about in the 80s, but that was the 80s, I was, that's when I became, I would say, politically aware, so, and I was seeking out things to, uh, I guess, maybe vent my suburban anger, <laughs> but, but, uh, but you don't hear a lot about this, like, I, I heard you and I speak on some other programs and, and read some articles, it's like, you don't hear this because Colombia and I guess I mean I really was unaware of how friendly the United States was with Colombia. 
Yeah, it's our number one ally in in the hemisphere, without a doubt. I mean, it's held out as that by the U.S. It receives more military aid in the hemisphere from the U.S. than any other country. And uh, for a number of years, uh, from 2000 on till at least about 2007, uh, it, it was the third largest recipient of U.S. military uh, aid on the earth, only third to... Israel and Egypt, which are always number one and two. I mean, that doesn't change. So the number three category is a huge, you know, and as my hero Noam Chomsky pointed out, uh, they became number three. Turkey had been number three, but once, you know, through U.S. military aid, they were able to, you know, eradicate their Kurdish population. The U.S. then moved on to Colombia and helped them eradicate their uh, peasant and, and indigenous and Afro-Colombian population. Right. So uh, there's uh, five million. You were saying, I, I believe I read over five million internally displaced peoples. There, yeah, the largest internally displaced population on Earth, even larger than in Darfur, for example, which is really the human rights cause celeb uh, <laughs> right now. You know, George Clooney goes there and whatnot. Um, yeah, and and most. Well, at least a disproportionate number of those are Afro-Colombian indigenous, and according to the U.S. itself, uh, a number of indigenous tribes there are on the verge of extinction well, at this point. I'm sure all this is going to be brought up in the upcoming debates. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, and it has been, well, I mean, truthfully, yeah, there has been very little debate on it. There was a little around the Columbia Free Trade Agreement during the 2008 debates, Uh with Obama saying he would oppose the free trade agreement with Colombia because of the union killings there. Um, and, of course, then he went on to sponsor the free trade agreement uh, recently, and that which was ended very, up getting passed. That was a very backdoor thing on his his dealings, was it not? I mean, that was something like I only heard about by via like other friends of mine who are very politically aware. And, you know, it's like, you're not going to hear that shit on NPR or Democracy Now. By the way, I heard a slam you made against NPR that cracked me up where you're just like, yeah, and then people get to listen to a little jazz or classical music in between segments and feel good about it themselves. Yeah, exactly. And some, yeah, no, I know. I think I was attacking Scott Simon, who I find to be the most painful to listen to. And I get, I mean, I will say I pretty much listen to it religiously only because it's kind of a habit, but it causes me, you know, ulcers, I think. But yeah, you get to hear Pete Seeger or something interviewed, and then he gets into talking about how we need to bomb Libya or something like that. Um, and I don't know. I think that's the problem. We get a nerd to that. We're, I mean, that's kind of the liberal radio. I mean, they, you know, that's where the liberals go to get their news. And and I just think people have gotten used to thinking that it's okay for the U.S. to just run amok throughout the world and do these things to the extent they know about it. I mean, they know about, you know, kind of to some extent our involvement in the Middle East. But in Latin America, it's pretty much – you know, as you say, it's not in the news at all. Yeah, and why, I mean, I know back in the 80s, uh, Bono was down there a lot and drumming up awareness. And But it's like now, it's, you know, like you said, Clooney goes over to Darfur. It's like nobody's going down there and, and, and drawing attention to this. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's fucking upsetting <laughs> when you, when you, I, I think I wept at times during the Coke documentary. Not, you know, like a a baby, but I, I definitely got emotional. 
Yeah, well, I think it comes back again to, you know, as, as most things, uh, at least for me, come back to is Noam Chomsky. I mean, he, he writes a lot about, you know, uh, worthy victims and unworthy victims. And so the worthy victims are those who are being oppressed or killed by someone else, especially our enemies. And so, for example, in the Sudan Darfur conflict, you have a, a very uh, kind of easy to digest story of Christians being killed by Muslims, and China is involved in it, or not so much. And so, it's very easy for people to um, to to empathize with those folks, and very you know convenient for the for the media to talk about it. When you talk about victims of of U.S. military action or U.S. military aid, then you you're talking about what Chomsky would say is the unworthy victims. Those aren't people the media wants to talk about or that celebrities want to deal with because then we have to confront the fact that it's our own country with our own tax dollars that are doing these things. So we tend to to ignore them. Um, and there seems to be good good evidence that that's a, that, that is a, a true phenomenon. It's, a, it's amazing how this country can be steeped in a tradition of genocide, frankly, and a lot of wrongdoing, and no, no one ever, ever wants to acknowledge it. Well, that's true, you know, and I, and I, and I you know, I mean, a comparison is that, you know, for all of its faults, when you look, for example, at the Soviet Union, you kind of can look at a very short history there. For all their faults, they were pretty willing at different times to say, hey, we did terrible things, and let's can we think about how to do things better? You know, you see that under Khrushchev and under Gorbachev. In this country, we're very unwilling to kind of look at our conduct and say, hey, maybe we can do things better. Yeah, as you say, you know, we killed 18 million Native Americans, uh, and yet that's not discussed as genocide. Instead, we're like obsessed uh, about whether Turkey is going to call what it did to the Armenians genocide, right? I mean, and again, it's like it's convenient to worry about that, but it's very inconvenient to start worrying about what we've done. And and I think until this society is willing to confront its demons, of course, how can it be – how can it kind of move forward in a, in a positive direction? And it's very difficult. Yeah. I mean it's – if you look at – just everything is, a, in my opinion, seems like a huge state of denial. Like it, you, I was thinking about last night that pop music used to – at least in the 60s and 70s, there was always some socially conscious – there's nobody right now. It's all like, hey, look at my car and look how much I make. Like that's all the fucking music right now and it's – perplexing and we're just like zoned out into nothing these days i, I don't know <laughs> yeah well no i think music is the best example you know i mean in terms of the culture because there's some okay movies and there's some okay books uh but in terms of, of the of the music as you say there is no bob dylan there is a bob dylan and he just came in, came out with a pretty decent cd which i'm i'm listening to these days tempest but these are all holdouts from the periods you're talking about, the 60s and 70s. There really isn't a social consciousness in music, and not even – and let's face it, for the most part, at least in terms of pop music, there's barely any signs of life or intelligence. I mean it's complete <laughs> nonsense. I mean even my children who are 13 and 16 
they you know they kind of write off the music man they they tend to listen to the stones and the beatles and you know and and I actually there are kids like fellow kids in their in their school in their high school they have posters of the beatles in their locker because the stuff being put out now is just complete garbage you know and it is a sign of of a culture in decline and also political consciousness that that just is has declined so greatly from those periods of protest. Yeah, John Sinclair said on my show last week that you know you need a, a cultural movement and to to sort of be the base of of a political movement, and which I thought was an interesting point. And it's like you go back to a lot of this stuff in the '60s, and the music and whatnot was it was all very intermingled, and it's like the only guys you see at like rallies these days are you know the couple dudes from Rage Against the Machine and, and like Wayne Kramer from the MC5. It's like, that's two two bands, two guys. It's like, that's all we yeah, got. Or an, or an aging Pete Seeger who's pushing 100 or so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's true, you know, and, and that, no, if you look at the late 50s and 60s in particular, you see this synergy between the music and the protest where the two are feeding off each other and the music helps propel the protest movement and the protest movement helps propel the music and you have bands competing for who's going to be the voice of this protest movement etc it was so exciting you know it's yeah. and we yeah now it is it is not exciting it it's pretty pretty sad. Almost really. everybody I know listens to oddly music from, you know, and there's some good uh new bands and stuff, but it's just mm, the substance, but yeah, it's um do you feel that change or there's a something because like for a while I thought there was something bubbling under the surface and I'm like uh, you know, like in Madison or even just recently in Chicago when a bunch of, you know, thousands of people hit the streets, it's like you go, oh, fuck, thank God, like somebody's doing something. But Yeah, and, and most notably Occupy, of course. Um, but yes, look, I think that there is something bubbling. I look, I mean, people are unhappy. I think that it, it's a hard to put your finger on and kind of what the cause of these problems are for some people, but there's no doubt there's unrest Truthfully, and the, the irony of having uh, a Democrat like Obama in power is I think it really tamps down on that protest. I think if, if Bush were president now and the exact same things were happening, people would be much more willing to protest. And, and like these drone attacks, for example, that, that Obama has really you know, uh, increased during his tenure. Again, if Bush were doing that, you would see people in the street. I think people are not willing – they kind of accept that no matter what this guy does, he's kind of good at heart, that sort of thing. So they won't protest. You know, uh, there, there's a certain irony there. It's um, it's perplexing, and it's like if you socially say anything against uh, Obama, it's it's like you showed your dick to somebody's mom. <laughs> they get so fucking pissed. No, it's true. It's true. And look, I mean, the problem is, of course, because you have the right wing critiques, which are, you know, infected with racism and horrible and all that. But there is a real progressive critique of the guy, of course. And as you say, people don't want to hear that. And they kind of do associate any criticism with with somehow, you know, uh, the bad criticism from the right. But I mean, the truth is the guy in terms of his politics has turned out to be pretty miserable. You know, I think his foreign policy is awful. 
his domestic policy has been very tepid. And I can see people certainly deciding, hey, you know, we got to vote for Obama because he's, he's going to be better than Romney. It's a fair point. But once you vote the guy in, what do you do then? You know, you don't protest him. You don't challenge him. I mean, that's a mistake. And then what you get is what you see now. I mean, you see these very aggressive foreign policy. When, when Obama took office, we had special forces in 90 countries. We now have special forces in 120 that is a fact you uh, you do not hear. Not at all. The other thing is he upped – when he came in, I think the U.S. was supplying the world with about 59% of its arms. It's now supplying it with about 77%. You know, our aggression has actually increased under him, but – and in people, again, for the most part, don't even know it, but even confronted with it kind of shrug, you know, but again, if you saw that same phenomenon under, say, a McCain, if he had been elected, people would be bothered by that, but they're not bothered by it because they like this guy and kind of trust that he he's somehow inside a good guy, you know, but it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, the Batman line in the first movie. I kind of like the Batman films, though they're kind of, they're kind of right wing, but I enjoy them anyway, but where he says, you know, it's not what I am inside, but what I do that defines me, which is kind of an obvious point, but it's true. I mean, who cares if Obama's a nice dad and whatever, and he, the fact is what he does is pretty horrible, and 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 people aren't willing to accept that. And Well, actually, they are. They're willing to accept those horrible things, and that's the problem. We've learned to accept the unacceptable, and therefore those things continue to happen. It's – yeah, it's – I think people – at the time he came around, people were starved, and I think people still are starved for something positive, um, and 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 somebody who would change things, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, you project your desires into him, so to speak, and it's like, and I honestly, am, uh, I don't think the pol the Democrats or the Republicans are ever going to fucking change anything, and we have to find different ways to, you know, I like hit them, the corporations and whatnot in their wallets and start spending money, you know, affect change differently through ourselves, not wait for these fucking guys to do something. I mean, am I well, wrong? No, you're right. I mean, you, you basically have a, a, a right-wing party now and an ultra-right-wing party. And no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no reason to give faith to either of these parties. Again, you can maybe vote on the basis of the lesser of the two evil kind of principle, which is not, you know, unreasonable. But when you come down to it, neither party is representing us. They're representing corporate interests. And again, in terms of U.S. power projection, they're both equally terrible. In fact, it's very hard to distinguish the two. On those big issues, which are never, and again, yeah. Oh, I, I just meant which are never. You never really hear about. It's all like you've said in some pieces I've read. Like it's all about wedge issues, and it's like, yeah, and it's kind of that. The one guy wrote the book. Uh, what is it? Uh, What's wrong with Kansas? I'm forgetting his name now. But and his point. His, that's kind of his point. He says that look on, on the, he focuses not on foreign policy but economic issues, and he says look, neither party's really offering economic solutions for people. No one feels that they're being helped out. So in the end, all you're left are with the wedge issues. 
So, you know, all all people vote on is whether they support or oppose gay marriage and whether they oppose or support abortion. That's all you have. That That's your choice. That's your Crest toothpaste versus Colgate. And I'm, you know, I'm, on those. I mean, those are substantial issues, but it is it's frustrating because it is when then you take those that issue away and it's like, well, yeah, you got. Nothing's really changed since Bush, and as you said, a lot of things have uh, as- actually escalated and become more violent and, and militaristic. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the one other thing that comes to mind, and I the other thing I actually do teach, uh, kind of as I, I started teaching law at the, the university here, I teach human rights law, and, and the one thing that we've been looking at are, you know, the new uh, uh, bill that... Uh, Obama signed recently that says that you can now um, it's legal for the U.S. government to detain a U.S. citizen as an enemy combatant uh, without trial until the end of hostilities, whenever those will be. I mean, in a way, there's no clear. It's not clear those hostilities will ever end. I mean, we've we've eradicated you know basic due process rights. He authorized the drone attack on a U.S. citizen, which killed the citizen plus his 16-year-old son, which no one claimed had done anything wrong. You know, these are things – again, if Bush had done that, that would be considered absolutely shocking. I mean, he has shredded the Constitution, and this was a constitutional lawyer. I mean, that's a lower law professor, Obama was. And again, it's just what people are willing to accept because their guy did it is just amazing. It's 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 strange that uh, he has this pop culture like he's kind of an icon. He's a brand more than he is a politician. And I think people buy into this this image and it's it's perplexing. Uh, It's also. Yeah. Well, well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it's kind of genius uh, marketing. Well, it is. And it is marketing and it is marketing a product. That's how candidates, you know, they do campaign. They they are marketing themselves, and it reminds me a lot, frankly, of kind of uh, professional athletics as well. With people kind of, especially I live in Pittsburgh. I mean, the obsession with the Steelers is incredible, and there's some sense like that people have. I don't know, some sense like I don't understand. Okay, I I happen to live in Pittsburgh, and I have for 20 years. Um, but like, why do I uh, myself? I can't feel loyal to them just because they happen to live here. It doesn't make any sense to me, and yet it seems to be kind of a natural thing for people to do that. Though I don't think anyone would argue the Steelers are any more like morally superior to the Cowboys or, or any other team. But there is a certain, you know, instinct that people have. Maybe everywhere, I don't know, but particularly in this country, to just kind of, you know. To buy into the home team, whoever that home team is, and to, 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 as you say, project what you want them to be onto them. And I think that's true with Obama, you know, the people. And I did this in 2008. I, I, I was a wild supporter of Obama, and I projected onto him that he was going to be a peacemaker. You know, I guess I wasn't alone. I guess the people who gave out the Nobel Prize thought the same thing. And, of course, it just turned out not to, to be true. Do you think they can take that thing back and <laughs> be like, hey, wait a minute? <laughs> Yeah, I think not, though. I think they're regretting it. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, I think, you know, he's proven that uh, he, he's certainly degraded uh, that prize, though not much more than, like, say, Kissinger did when he received it either. I mean, it 
it's gone to kind of strange people and like never went to Gandhi, you know, and, you know, I think there's a, it's a questionable value to begin with, but, but nonetheless, um, the late, you know, giving it to Obama was not, seemed to be kind of a waste of, waste of effort at that point. Do you, do you think voting actually matters or, or is it, I mean, because uh, I know a lot of people who are like, I'm not, I don't vote anymore because there's like, what's the goddamn point? Is that, is that a bullshit? I mean, it's because it's, it's maddening. And like when, it, if it was going to be Clinton and, uh, well, I'm blanking on who Obama ran against. <laughs> uh, just having like McCain. McCain, or, right, right. Or, yeah. Like if I was like, neither of these people represent me. Like, how can I vote for people who don't represent me in, and is not voting also a vote and if and I've said that or questioned that and I've always voted but if I've said that in parties or whatever I get attacked <laughs> yeah no yeah you don't deserve to be attacked for that I certainly think it's a reasonable view I think it's reasonable for someone to say look I am voting voting by not voting yeah I'm going to vote with my feet and and I don't approve and of course in many countries you have times when various opposition groups will boycott votes because they say it's not fair or or whatever to 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 you know uh, to make a point. M- my own feeling in my in my darkest hours, I certainly take the view ah, I'm not going to vote, or you know I'm going to write in you know whatever. None of the above. Um, and I certainly feel that way a lot of times. I don't think it's unreasonable. I think I don't think it's wrong from a moral point of view. Um, on the whole, I think there's some value to it. I certainly think on the on the more local level for Congress people and senators. I mean, obviously, there's kind of marginal differences that do make a difference in in people's lives. Um, I think, yeah, with like the, the way the Koch brothers have been so grassroots with like school boards and like it's. I mean, it's alarming with the shit they have pulled off. Yeah, and our governor here in Pennsylvania, I mean, you know, my kids go to public schools and he he cut $1 billion out of the public education fund just this year. I mean, those things make a difference, you know, and and the former mayor, Ed Rendell, who's a Democrat, probably wouldn't have done that. I mean, so there are good, you know, there are important differences. And I, I think you can't, again, notwithstanding our, our inclination at times to want to say, ah, oh, there's no difference. Obviously, there's some difference, but and it may be worth voting uh, on that, but again, I, I I don't hold it against anyone who says you know they're out because because there's other ways to make social change and voting is not necessarily the best one. I mean, whoever you the point is this I think whoever you vote for, whether you vote at all, your job isn't done on election day. Your job just begins because you have to engage in forms of protest to make our elected officials officials do the right thing. And there's proof that unless that's done, um, it won't happen. I mean, a great example, frankly, is Richard Nixon. I mean, he was greatly fearful of protest and who was, you know, frankly, if you look at his domestic policies, much more liberal than Obama or Clinton. Was he not? And why is Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I just, he was also very pro-healthcare, was he not? I mean, he was. We could have national healthcare under him. He 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 supported that. In fact, the AFL-CIO ended up opposing it because they didn't want to give the Republican the the victory. But yes, he supported that. He supported various price controls. He he was very progressive uh, domestically. 
not because he's such a good guy, but because there was a protest movement forcing him to do those things. And that is the lesson that's been lost in all this, that, that you know, it's, it's protest movements that are critical. Well, Dan, and, and that are going to bring about change. I like things on Facebook, and so I've done my job. Okay, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> like, I mean, but that's. I think people are like repost this and retweet this, and I'm like, that ain't going to fucking do anything because you're posting it to your friends who agree with you, or maybe your mom sees it and she disagrees with you, and she isn't going to do anything. It's like go out and do something. But yeah, well, you you hit on a very profound issue, you know that. You know that, that that it may be deeper than yeah, just not just having people who aren't critical of the system, but even if they are, they're not willing to do anything. Why? Because we have a society that is doesn't do anything that that does confuse being on the computer with actually doing something. And I I I. I as time goes on, we'll see what the product of that is. But, I mean, you just have people who don't relate to each other in any real way, only through Facebook. You know, they, they'll say, oh, I have 800 friends on Facebook. What could that possibly mean? It means very little. But um, we live in kind of this virtual world. But, but it, there is a real world, you know, to engage with. <laughs> Right. I mean, the virtual world is not a substitute. And yet I think especially for kids growing up, I mean, I probably sound like an old fart saying these things, but it's true. I I think that may be the more profound problem that the whole idea of, of engaging with other people and engaging in real action is being lost to this virtual world that, that we seem to be subsumed in. Yeah. And it's it's like interesting, too, because like uh, and even I got distracted by it for a little while, but I, the Occupy movement, uh, you know, and I would go past the one here in Los Angeles a couple times a week, and there was such a tainted, like, yeah, these fucking lazy kids just sleeping out, and it's like, and no one, and then I was like, I need to in investigate this because I need to know what this is, and... But most people, I think, were just content going like, eh, fucking stinky hippies sleeping around. <laughs> like That's all they, most people still view it that way and are irritated by it. And I'm like, these, for the first time, there's a movement saying, you know, go attacking the banks, which is kind of a unique approach that no one's really ever done. And that is a big issue. Right, and people feel inconvenienced by it. I mean, that's, you know, we do, we live in a world where we expect 100% convenience all the time. And the, yeah, the idea of sleeping in the street or, you know, protesting in front of the White House on a cold day is not, it, it's, it, it, it's very off-putting to people. But a lot of people uh, protested uh, Conan getting taken off from the Tonight Show, and I was like, oh, okay, that's, that, is this our 60s? <laughs> Yeah, or, or or they'll vote, you know, on uh, for American Idol, you know, um, but but and as you recall, I mean, not it wasn't long ago at all, like in two thousand three, that people were on the streets in large numbers to protest the run up to the Iraq War. I mean, there were those things that were happening, yeah. and it was very inspiring and very exciting, and it it, it you know that wasn't that long ago. But now where are we at? Those things 
Again, I, I suspect if a Republican were elected, and and that the people would be more willing to do those things. That's my. That's I suspect that. that you know, in a weird way, that that suspicion makes me question. Like, is it would that in a way be one of the better things <laughs> that could happen? <laughs> because maybe people would get riled up again instead of this sort of complacent nature that like everyone's just fucking armchairing it. I think there's a reasonable argument to be made in that regard. I mean that especially because so much energy and I in so many resources go towards these elections. By the time the election happens, people are exhausted. That's what happened in 2008. Everyone put their energy into getting Obama elected and they thought, "Okay, now we're in great shape. You know, peace will now reign around the world and you know, our problems will be solved." Well, of course that wasn't true. Um, but they were they, they put so much energy into the elections, they had nothing left to do what they had to do, and that is to protest to force him to do what they, they wanted him to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the elections are kind of a distraction in many ways it's a, from it, the tasks at hand. It's astounding how long they go on. And I have a friend who's from Australia, and she was like, ours last a month, and then they work the rest of the time. And I was like, wow, wouldn't and, – and, and the insane amounts of money spent – uh, and and it's like people are like, oh yeah. I'm like, well, these guys are going to be beholden to the the people who funded their campaign, not us. They don't give a shit. Exactly, and and it is it. So now the election season lasts how now? Uh, long now, about a year and a half or something, which is incredible. The billions of dollars spent. And again, the the waste that that is involved in that. That the money could be used elsewhere for so many. Good purposes. I mean, it really is. It's a drain on this society, and for so little return, frankly. And I, yeah, and there's something that, like, I have been bringing up a, a lot, and uh, on the show and whatnot too, and something that I saw you of why the why the wars are never brought up as a part of the problem with our deficit. It's always right. this, which I love the word entitlement. <laughs> like I want to punch everybody who uses that like entitlement benefits line, but it's like all these issues could would not exist if we just would stop being in Afghanistan. I I think I pluralized Afghanistan. <laughs> it's so taxing. It's there should be two Afghanistan's. <laughs> <laughs> or nine, yeah. Given given how many times that poor country's been uh, been invaded. No, I think that's right. That mili- the military spending is never on the table because there's too many vested interests to get at it. I mean, I saw a, t- uh, a statistic that you know they estimate if you spend only three hundred billion dollars, you know, you could save literally hundreds of thousands of people from starvation. And we spend over $600 billion a year on our military. I mean, it, it's incredible and that that isn't being questioned. And, and, you know, is it really making us safer? I mean, it, I don't think anyone really believes that. I mean, the, none of these military policies, these adventures in places like Libya and Syria and Somalia, does anyone really think that, that that's making us safer somehow? I mean, no one really thinks that. Um, 
And if you put resources here, how many more people would you save? I mean, they, I saw a statistic that you're more likely to be killed by furniture than by a terrorist. <laughs> well, I drink so whiskey, why? so yeah, that's yeah, more possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so why, why spend all this money? You know, 45,000 people in this country die of the flu every year. If you just made sure everyone got their flu shot, save 45,000 people. Again, there's, if you really care about saving you know, human life and American life. There's other ways to go about it that would be much cheaper and much less destructive than the policies we're engaged in. There was just a study that came out yesterday, actually, that kind of blew my mind in part. It was from two law schools, one NYU and Stanford, and they did a study on the drone wars in Pakistan. And their conclusion is a pretty incredible report. Their conclusion was, number one, you know, a very large number of civilians, of course, are being killed in these drone attacks. A number of the people that we even claim are militants, it's very questionable really whether they are, or at least militants bent on attacking us in any way. And moreover, they are creating such ill will in Pakistan towards us that, in fact, they have the likely tendency to create more terrorism rather than to to prevent it, which again seems quite obvious to many of us. But I mean, if that is the case, then why are we doing this? This is insane. It literally is insane. And yet there is no voice that's being raised against it. Do you, do you have an idea why we would be doing such things like that? I mean, is there... Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I do think in part... Uh, in part, I think uh, the leaders think that there's a certain bloodlust that has to be satisfied still even after 9-11 that if you're not, if you're not killing a few people who you can claim are militants that the, the, the electorate will somehow uh, be disappointed in you. I think that also particularly if you see where we're focused at in terms of our military activity, it seems to me it's more of an issue – of resource control, particularly over oil, than it is about fighting terrorism. Right, absolutely. That, that, that we're very desperate. Look, the, the economy is it's still teetering, and it could, it could go into a second recession or a depression uh, very soon. And I think that there is a desperation to grab as many resources as we can um, while we can, and I think that's what the uh, intervention in Libya was about. I think that's what the present intervention in Syria is about. I think that's what the war in Afghanistan is really about. Um, and I think that while people kind of, many people assume that somehow stability allows us access to those resources, I think there is at least a school of thought uh, by people in power that in fact it's chaos that works more to the advantage to be able to, to grab those things because you don't have states doing crazy things like nationalizing their own resources or whatever that that's viewed as a negative uh, to be able to grab other people's resources and so I think that's what it what, what it's about um, and when you see what kind of resources the US controls it's actually quite stunning we have about four percent of the world's population and yet we control 32% of its resources. That's why I'm proud to be I mean, American. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's stunning. It's, 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 it's theft on a grand scale, and that type of theft could only be done 
through violence. I mean, there's just no, you can't do that. And, and, you know, nicely. And I think that's what you see. I, I think this violence, that, that is largely what that's about. Do you think, I think these times that we're in um, definitely help uh, create a lot of conspiracy theories. And I have an episode that I have yet aired where it gets in, a guy gets into a lot of these. And do you think there's any like you know like oh well if the government does a b and c so we're we're not healthy so we can't do this and that so then we have to join the military or they keep us in fear do you do you think there's any validity to the a lot of and i I know i wasn't very specific and i guess i could be if you wanted but i figured you probably knew a lot of these thoughts yeah i mean i'm always i'm always well certainly reluctant to put things in in terms of conspiracy theories though i think I think there's other ways to put them, and that is that. Look, I do think that the you know the people, the moneyed interests that control our society and our government certainly do things to keep the population in check. And so, I do think this constant war footing that we're on it has many different purposes, but there's certainly one purpose. And Orwell, of course, dealt with it probably the best in, in 1984. Um, it's a it's a means to quell dissent. I mean, people are less likely to, you know, to question their government or to protest, much as to protest it, when we think we're at war and that we have these foreign enemies, you know. And so the U.S. always appears to be looking for the next enemy, right? So it was in our lifetime when we were younger, it was communism, right? Um, even though in many times the countries we were fighting weren't communist, and, and to the extent they moved towards communism, many times it was because we attacked them first and they had nowhere else to turn to. And um, and, and then, of course, it's it's terrorism now. But meanwhile, we do, we do link up with terrorists all the time. Um, in Colombia, that's the case. The paramilitaries there are a designated terrorist organization, but we know that the money we're giving to the military, that that, that, that same military works with those paramilitaries and supplies them, etc. So I do think that there's something to to the uh, effect that that war, constant war, is a control mechanism. There's no question on both the people we're fighting and and on the domestic population. Yeah, we've been, I mean, in one form of war or another since, you know, since World War One. It's been, it's been non, pretty much nonstop. And then, yeah, I'd even say from the Spanish-American War in 1898 is where, you know, after, of course, yeah, domestic. We we did our domestic killing through, you know, getting rid of the Native Americans, you know, getting the parts of Mexico. Uh, we got in 1898. We began this real worldwide expansion, and we've been at war ever since under various di- different pretexts. Many times, which were complete lies. I mean, um, if you start with the war, you know, Spanish-American War. You know, you remember the Maine, and we claim the Spanish sunk the Maine. In fact, it turns out it looks like uh, from inspections that the Maine that it blew up from within. Probably the boiler exploded, and you look at uh, the Gulf of Tonkin with Vietnam, uh, where they claim the Vietnamese attacked uh, U.S. ships. That turned out not to be true. The weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which ended up not being there. 
time after time we we lie the American public into war. And and I think it's hard to find another country on earth that has had this kind of unbroken period of, of war. Not against just one country at a time, but multiple countries on multiple fronts. Yeah, <clears throat> I can I, I consider myself a mini America, and I spread lies in barrooms to start fights between people. There you go. There you go. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Exactly. You, you poke people, and you know, blame the other guy. What? Yeah, I mean, it, and then I just there steal is a lot drinks. of them. But <laughs> <laughs> that's you know, it's that the drinks represent oil. I. Uh, as a as a guy who uh, a, a blue collar kid who grew up in Chicago, very union minded, uh, and very frightened about the state of unions, uh, not only in our country but within the world. And you said something in uh, recently, or maybe not recently, but there was unions no longer fit into our culture, which was a really terrifying statement, but also uh, kind of eye opening in a lot of ways how i don't even know how to form but it's like where is union where is the unions where are they headed and like and i mean are we gonna lose all unions it i mean it feels like these guys are fucking doing everything they can to crush unions or well i cer i certainly think look if i mean to be totally realistic you will see the union movement shrinking you know, as time goes on, will will it disappear altogether? I mean, probably not. Um, but it certainly is, and will probably continue to lose power. You know, a, a lot of it has to do, certainly, with industrial unions, with the fact that you know a lot of the work that we had went offshore. I mean, that that has been very difficult to to confront and to and to rebound from. And and he did have public unions, which made up for the largest proportion of unionization. And now, as you say, uh, various states, uh, leaderships, mostly Republicans see blood in the water, and they're starting to destroy those as well. Meanwhile, for the most part, you know, there isn't – there's some public outcry uh, against this, but there's not enough. I mean, because I think people are not uh, – they don't feel the importance of unions like they used to, in part because I think there's been a very good job of vilifying these unions. There's a movie out right now I see with Maggie Gill Gillian Hall. Is that how you pronounce her Gillian Hall, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, which really vilifies teachers. You know, it's a very oh, common you're refrain. You're kidding me. A movie? No. Yeah, I just heard a review this morning on NPR, and it's it's the storyline is that. Uh, it's about these mothers who are being, you know, their kids are being abused by these unionized teachers in the public schools, and so they go ahead and start a charter, a charter school. And apparently, by the way, I read a great Labor Notes article that that movie was shown at the Democratic National Convention because, you know, Obama's a big supporter of charter schools. And, of course, the Chicago strike was brought on by his former chief of staff, you know, Rahm Emanuel. I mean, the Democrats are as much, you know – to blame for this anti-union rhetoric, and so and people are buying it. The other problem is, you know, culturally, it kind of goes back to what we said before, is that people, while they have kind of virtual relationships, they don't have the relationships with people that they used to. Neighbors don't, you know, 
have the relationships they used to have. You know, you now a lot of times they don't even know your neighbors. People don't go bowling together. People don't do those civic types of things together. And that's you need to do those things. If you're going to form a union, you have to work with other people. And that's becoming very alien to people in a society that's more and more individualistic. Um, and, and technology obviously has a huge role in that. Computers, iPhones with the, you know, everyone walking around the streets like zombies with their <laughs> earphones and their ears and, you know. Um, and I'm one of those people, I like to listen to me. I love music, you know, and I love to walk around the streets and listen to music. Uh, though I do, if I see someone I know or even if I'm getting off the bus, I do make a point to take them out and say, you know, thank you and goodbye. You know, at least to... Because with those earphones in, you know, there's no, you know, it is a barrier to any type of, of interaction. It's telling people, you know, fuck off, basically. You know, I don't want to talk to you, yeah. you know. But listening to music is better because at least it's like when I lived in New York, I'd, you know, I'd have headphones on and it was like it was almost like I was scoring my stroll or whatever. And I would take things in and I would observe instead of like burying your face in your fucking phone and walking around and bumping into everybody it's like you know that well, is I agree really with, upsetting and i agree and again i don't want to underplay that i love music i do the same thing as you say it is kind of the score to our life and uh i do some of my best thinking walking and listening to music and i don't want to say that there's anything wrong with that but i do think it does it does you know when people are doing that in the cityscape all day it it does. It is a barrier to to human intercourse. I would say, you know. Yeah, uh, I question how, just how much more, uh, how rapid everyone's minds must be getting because it's like, no one can. I, I'm speaking f f from my own experience as as myself. Is like, I've discovered that over the past couple of years, my focus has, my thoughts jump around a lot quicker. I, I have a hard time harder time reading and processing information to the point where I was like, this is alarming. I need to really step back and change this because this is not healthy. And I would not to sound arrogant, but I would say most people don't are not aware of that. And it thus, I think thought is getting uh, shorter and worse. <laughs> Forgive the uh, poorly structured sentencing. <laughs> Well, it's true. It's true. And I worry about that particularly like with my kids because, uh, you know, they don't have any kind of, for the most part, they don't, they don't play with friends a lot. They are on the computer a lot. And I actually saw, you know, read several interesting studies on this. One, this guy did an interesting study about something he called um, executive decision-making, which is kind of the ability just to of people to may be able to make big decisions about their own lives. And he found that interacting with nature is a wonderful way for people to learn those decision-making skills because you, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing planned out in nature. You have to react to things. You have to think creatively, et cetera. And he notes that kids just don't interact with nature anymore. When I was a kid, I used to, at a Creek in the back of my house that used to go for miles and I would just on a summer day, I'd, I'd follow it for miles and deplete the creek of its wildlife, its frogs and whatnot. Um, 
but, which wasn't positive. I'm not, you know, I used to catch all the frogs, they would die or whatever. But it, the, the point is, though, I did spend a lot of time by myself, kind of walking into nature. And that's, you know, it's a time for reflection. It's a time. Kids don't do that anymore. And and something is being lost in, in, in people's ability to think, as you say, to think critically. I think it's being lost, you know. Yeah, and it's amazing how quickly something comes up on the internet and nobody I'm like like something as simple as like a photo that is and people are like look at this crazy photo and I'm like are we not aware that everything can be photoshopped it's like <laughs> like no one questions anything they're just so willing to believe the weirdest of things just I don't understand I just don't understand it I'm like I question everything just because now it seems you should be more suspicious Yet everyone seems to be less suspicious. It's perplexing to me. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think those abilities to kind of uh, to think critically are being are being lost, and and people are kind of giving up. They're letting other people kind of think for them, or they just don't think at all. They're just distracted. We're in a constant state of distraction, um, yeah. and then you get distracted from your own life. I mean, you don't live. You you interact with a computer. That's what you do. Um, and, and I guess uh, there's some, where do you get, in, a, in an age, since we talked a lot about this, uh, the, uh, sort of, I would say, a theme of this conversation was very much information not getting out there, and, I mean, it exists. What, where do you go to f find your information and your facts and sort of untainted news does that exist, or well, do you have to seek, seek harder? Uh, as of late, I, I, I more and more go to the the website Counterpunch, counterpunch.org, which I think is excellent. I They have about 10 news articles a day, and then on the weekends they may have 15 to 20. And it's, you know, about as educated as I can get in kind of a sitting to read those articles, or, or at least a number of them. Um, so I would I would certainly urge people to check that site out. Um, I take a look at antiwar.com pretty often too. It has some interesting uh, things to read. Um, and then myself, of course, I do human rights stuff. So I, I look at a lot of human rights reports from the State Department, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch that I find very helpful to learn about kind of really what's happening. Is sometimes in Amnesty International a little, uh, say, sides with the United States? Am I wrong with that? Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I, I, I've been very critical uh, as of late about some of the things they're doing. And I think, like anything, you have to look at, at, at them with a jaundiced look, especially now their new director is actually from the U.S. State Department. So there is a certain... Bias there. There are times they're good. The one, the one shining example I thought was with Libya. If you recall, um, in kind of the when the U.S. just started intervening there, only in so far as we were claiming we were setting up a no-fly zone in order to to uh, justify further intervention to actually, you know. Uh, engage in regime change. You might recall Hillary Clinton went on air and said, "Oh, the." I thought she said just the most unbelievable thing I'd ever heard, and she said that 
Gaddafi was handing out Viagra to his troops to go and rape women. Okay? I mean, she said this, right? Do you remember this? I mean, this is... Yeah. And so, you know, this is why we need to topple Gaddafi, because he's doing this horrible thing. And, of course, my initial reaction was, that just doesn't sound true. It sounds ridiculous. Fucking absurd. And, yeah, and Amnesty International did pretty quickly. They went and they interviewed people, and they said, look, we don't think that's true. We don't, we don't have any evidence of that. We don't have ev- any evidence, uh, at least at that time, of, of, of uh, Gaddafi troops raping anyone. Um, and this is untrue. And so that was helpful, you know, and I think to the extent groups like that, you know, report on the uh, on those facts, it's very, very important because people are taken in by that. I mean, in the case of Libya, right. most of my friends, even leftist friends, they supported the intervention, you know, which I did not. And I, I still don't, even in retrospect. And um, but they were taken in by those things. Um and, you know, now what do we have there? You know, you have a very divided country that's probably going to be divided into maybe even three separate states is, is turning out. We saw, of course, what happened in Benghazi with the, the ambassador being killed uh, and some of his staff, which was interesting, too. I mean, Clinton's reaction again there was, how you know, she comes on the air and says, well, how could they do this after what we did for them? We freed them and now they do this. Well, of course, the first question one have to, has to ask is, well, do they really think you freed them? I mean, maybe your premise is all mistaken. Maybe they're angry about what you did, you know. Um, but again, those questions aren't asked. Right? We always assume that U.S. power projection is somehow um, neutral to good, you know, which I, I think is most of the time not the case. Um but yeah, in any case, but you have to be careful because because a lot of those human rights groups have gotten into something that you know is now called humanitarian intervention, which actually my one of the reasons I agreed to teach this course on human rights is because actually I I wanted to to very much debunk the notion of humanitarian intervention, which for the most part is complete nonsense. States normally don't intervene to advance human rights; they do it for other reasons. Uh, of self-interest, of of resource control, etc. And but but people are buying this. Um, yeah, it's and, and yeah. Oh, I was just I was agreeing. It's just we we are always so we proclaim like oh we'll go and fight injustice like yeah and we ignore most of it. <laughs> it's like well we either ignore it or what we do is absolutely uh, uh, creates injustice. I mean another case which you don't hear about, uh, is the Congo. And so what has happened in the Congo? And this is a case of absolute doublespeak and absolute uh, disingenuousness. So right now we're very close to this leader in Rwanda named Paul Kagame, who's held up as this great guy, as this great humanitarian. And you'll see, if you go, if you Google him, whatever, you'll see you know, pictures of him with Clinton and various other um, other luminaries, and we have been funding him and and his military. Uh, and right now, by the way, there, there there's a big push to put Rwanda on the Security Council. Uh, that's going to be decided in the next uh, couple months. Meanwhile, what Rwanda has been doing with our military support is invading the Congo, and they've killed over six million people. Six million people. 
And this has been done. We've known they're doing this. We keep funding them. We supported that a uh, number of invasions by Rwanda into the Congo. It's one of the greatest, you know, death tolls by war in recent times, exceeding that of Darfur, for example. And yet, when do you hear about it? Never. It's, it's. I mean, it's it's amazing, and it's it's painful to. I mean, I'm sort of at a lack for words just from that because it's like, yeah. It's. And actually, I, I I urge people to see. There's a great film. If you go to the website called Friends of Congo, Friends of the Congo, they have a half hour film that you can download. They actually want to make it a full length feature, but they're they're looking for money f- to finish it, but. It's a very compelling film about about what I just said, and they interview very heavy hitters about it, who say that look that everything is its opposite in in Rwanda and the Congo. That what you've been told about what's happening there is the opposite of what's happening there. It, it's stunning, actually, and it's a good lesson in in doublespeak and how, frankly, we're actively misled about about the U.S. role in the world. Um, I want to uh, thank you very much for your time. This has been every it, like this. I've been striving for something like this on on this show for a long time. Uh, so I really, I really cannot thank you enough for your your time and your wisdom. <laughs> it's been amazing. Um, and I don't know if you ever have the desire to come back. I would if you feel you would like to share some things or whatever. I would like to give you an open invitation because I've really enjoyed this and would like to continue sort of getting this kind of information out there. Um, well, absolutely, Matt. This has been equally a pleasure for me, and I was very surprised to be invited on the show. I, I would come any time, and I definitely, the next time I have something interesting to say, I will well, I, I will definitely let you know. Do you have now, I, I know I, I've read your uh, articles on uh, uh on many of these websites that we talked about, and do you have any? Are you working on a book, or is there anything in the in the? I I, I have kind of an idea for a book. I, I have been working kind of on one. I'm not sure much is going to happen with that. I haven't gotten a lot of takers for it, but I, I continue to write for Counterpunch. Actually, I'm going to. They have a. Uh, they have a, uh, a a written, you know, subscription only thing uh, where you get to write a little longer. They invited me to do a piece, which will be coming out at the end of October. Um, I'm also writing on a law review article actually on the laws of of, of war and, and human rights and how these interventions, these various interventions, uh, violate these rules. And um, that's a little more, you know, I suppose um, academic, but I think uh, it should be interesting. Do Do you have uh, the Twitter? <laughs> I just, I mean, that way we could see when these articles come out and whatnot. Yeah, you know, I, I was on Twitter, and I may go back on, but I, and, and, and if, you know, you're encouraging me to do that, I, I will do it. I actually got, I got hacked one day or, or something. I don't know. My, my Twitter account started spitting out these weird, you know, messages, and so I kind of Pro deactivated it. <laughs> no, I don't know what they were, you know, like a weird video or something. Someone had... I think they were hacked, sent it to me. Yeah. I tried to open it. I opened it, and then mine started spitting it out, and I, I kind of panicked and deactivated it. If you're, if those so, uh, fucking things, if you're slightly distracted and you're like, uh, like I've, and I've now anytime anybody sends me anything, I've, I write them, and I'm like, what did you send me, and did you send that? Because it's like it's caused 
complete disasters in my life. Yeah, because it's embarrassing, you know, because, you know, all you have is your credibility. And if, you know, you're sending out messages you don't want to send, that, that's a little troubling. So. And again, not to sound overly um, like I'm a kiss up, but there's been a question on my mind for a long time of like, because I was a, a huge fan of Howard Zinn. And, I, and like you, I, I, Chomsky's like the dude to me. And... Um, not the dude from the movie, but I just meant like he's the, the, <laughs> but the big Lebowski. Yeah. One of my favorite films, which is, yeah, great. But I was, you know, I've been curious of who, when those, God forbid, when Chomsky passes, you know, we, those are, he's a very needed voice and, uh, you know, perhaps you are the man not to put pressure on you, but well, I, I have to say while I, I could only dream to aspire to that. I do. I mean, I I would hope that that I could play at least a, a minor role as, as as a disciple of him. And I certainly see myself in in the same vein as as he, and and hope that again, in a more modest way, uh, uh, I can continue on that work. Because you are right. We're you know those voices. Uh, Alexander Coburn, who who started Counterpunch, he passed away recently. Um, as well, Chomsky is still alive, but he's in his 80s. Uh, we are losing some of those great uh, critics, and so that look, look, there's rooms room for other voices. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. that need to step up at this point. And the great thing is that with Chomsky and Howard Zinn, is they saw so much of the past. You know, they really lived through a lot of that stuff, so their perspective is so important. Yeah, the arc of history that they saw was amazing, and you, you benefit so much from that. I actually, in my class, I, I gave the students a law review article, a Yale law review article written by Chomsky in 1971, applying the Nuremberg principles to Vietnam, and they were blown away, in part because they had no idea what the Vietnam War was about, and they had no idea how, how many people we killed in Vietnam, uh, you know, two, two to four million, it's, it's not clear exactly, but... Um, and the atrocities we committed and all that. And, and they were blown away. But also you could see his – he was at the height of his powers intellectually in grappling with these international laws. And uh, it's amazing, and again, that he has that, that perspective all the way back to there and, and being able to see what's happening now in that light is amazing. It's invaluable, you know. Yeah, it's uh... – that's. I just wish there was some way we could just keep that guy alive and bring Zinn back. Because <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, absolutely. It's just yeah, absolutely. Have you met Noam? Do you know Mr. Trump? I have met Noam. I met him once, and I met him. I had a meeting with him at his office at MIT. And first of all, he's a very gracious man. Uh, when I write an article, I usually send it to about. 50 of my friends or whatever. And I always send him one, you know, and he always replies. Very few of my friends do reply. You know, they mostly, you know, if I, someone sends me something, I'll, I'll usually send a nice little note back, but most people don't, you know, but no, always does. Yeah. He always sends something back. He always has a comment. He always has a question. And I did meet him once. And it was interesting because, uh, first of all, he has, at least at the time when I met him a few years back, he had one poster on his wall. Uh, and it was of Archbishop Romero, who I mentioned earlier in the show, yeah. and the six Jesuits in El Salvador who were murdered by U.S.-backed forces 
1989, as he notes, one month after the Berlin Wall fell, which he sees as very important to understanding you know, what the Cold War was about. Just as the Cold War is ending, we kill these six Jesuits in El Salvador. So really, you know, what was happening to begin with? But that that's a whole other story. But that was the one poster he had on his wall, which I found very interesting. He's very interested in Catholic liberation theology, um, which is, a, you know, which has always been a, a great interest to me as well. But again, I mean, the one thing you're struck by when you meet the man is just how gracious and how humble he is. Um, it, you know, I can't say enough about him. I know his his daughter Avi very well, and um, the one thing she says about him is what a great father he was. You know, a lot of times people are kind of you know they're great at one thing. They're a great writer or a great thinker or a great actor or whatever. And maybe you're not great parents or great husbands. And he he seems to be the full package, which in this world is very you know it it, it creates in me great optimism. You know that someone could could be all those things to people. That is pretty amazing. And yeah, I've written him a couple times. Once I asked some questions, and I've, I it was I would like to have had him on this show, but he declined, rightfully so. <laughs> but I but he wrote back, and I was like, I, I've I was shocked, and and but I, it it made me realize like it's like here is a man who truly cares and is kind to human beings like he doesn't think of himself as like i'm noam chomsky out of my way <laughs> like yeah and i th i think you know i think his view is to if someone is of goodwill and wants to learn and wants to do the right thing he's going to encourage them and he sees that as his duty you know and and it's beautiful i mean it's it's an amazing he 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 takes responsibility uh for that so he's he's a role model you know, yeah, he's he was a big influence. I I worked at a theater at, uh, in Chicago for years in uh, the Second City, where we did a lot of political social stuff, and he was like our god for knowledge and how to approach our work, and you know, trying to get those messages out there, which was pretty hard to, hard to make Chomsky messages humorous. <laughs> Bill Hicks is the well, only guy who came close. <laughs> he is sometimes kind of the prince of darkness, you know. There's a lot of you learn a lot of bad things when you hear a Chomsky speech, you know. But yeah. uh, but important, important to know. Very. Well, again, I thank you very much, and uh, this will probably go up Wednesday, and I'll I'll email you when that happens. But uh, I want to thank you again, just very much. This has been a great hour and fifteen minutes of my life, and I think my the people who listen to this are going to really be into it. So thank you. Well, thank you. I'm very honored to be on your show, and uh, I do hope to do this again. Uh, thank you very much. That was, uh, again, Dan Kavalik, and uh, hopefully he'll be doing the show again. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you like the show, uh, go to feralaudio.com and uh, donate some dough. We are not rich people. In fact, we are... Uh, constantly in need of uh, maintaining our website and uh, putting maintaining our bodies with silly things like nutrition and water <laughs> so help us out with that that would be pretty awesome if you can't afford to donate money which is understandable because uh, we live in a really awful time and it's probably not gonna get any better and that's not me being a pessimist that's just kind of me looking at the world and going whoo we sure is fucking up but uh, you can buy stuff through our Amazon link um, and uh, 
you know, I get a little kickback of that money. Uh, so then you don't feel so bad about uh, shopping through Amazon because at least then the money goes to help somebody. Though the you know, Amazon's kind of cocksuckers. Two, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire at the old Twitter. Rub my Twitterist, would you, everybody? Uh, also, uh, you can email me at conversationswithdewire at gmail.com and yell at me if you didn't like some of my leftist spewing. Or uh, say, hey, Dwyer, here's a picture of my boobs. Just don't be, uh, you know, like a Greek dude with big, hairy boobs. <laughs> All right. Don't. Ah, fuck it. You know what? I accept all human beings. Send your send your hairy Greek boobs to me, would you? And uh, go to feralaudio.com. Listen to some of the other shows. Listen to some of the other shows. There's a lot of good shows there. My good buddy Johnny Pepperton. Uh, big fan of his. Ellie and Georgia got a show. There's Dong Teeny. I mention the Dong Teeny girls all the time because they're, they're nice girls. And I don't think I'm leaving anything out. Uh, like me on the Facebooks and all that bullshit. And uh, take care of yourselves, everybody. Do yourself a favor and try to, you know, understand one another's suffering. Last time somebody pisses you off, be like, hey, maybe this person is really dealing with some internal demons and realize that uh, the moment's going to pass and it's all going to be okay. Uh, right? Is that a little hippy-dippy for everybody? And also, uh, if I may say, as the great Pete O'Neill once told me on the show, power to the people, all of the people. Thank you very much. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.